All right, go ahead and find your seats. Just as someone who gets nervous public speaking, I'm happy it's all my friends here today and not anyone that would make me additionally nervous. Uh, finished a series. We're not starting another one here for uh, you know another week or two. So I get the opportunity, I'm told, to talk about whatever I want today, which is always exciting and a little nerve-wracking. Because it's exciting because I have a wide topics I get to pick what I care about. But also nervous because when Matt comes up and says, Brian, I want you to preach on 1 Corinthians 9, like, cool, I just have to do what he says and do that. So there's a little bit additional to it. Um, so I'm going to talk to you guys a little bit today about uh, what is an actual gospel of prosperity and what is it that we reference it as, as a lot of preachers here in America, and what does it actually look like in the Bible? Uh, about a month ago, I had to go up to Chicago for a work training event, and it was me and other general managers, and then also like higher up people in the company, like regional managers, vice president. And I always hate going to those events because I'm worried that it's going to be the time where they finally realize, like, I don't know anything and I'm going to embarrass myself and get fired. And they're like, this Brian guy is an idiot. And so I go to this event and I, I quickly learn. We had a, a couple days where it was like book learning at a, at a hotel, like business conference center. And then there were some days where we got to go in the restaurants. And it's me and other people that have my job. And I always just assume they know 10 times more than me. And we have like this cooking competition over just Longhorn food. And I'm like, okay, you know, here's my moment to look like an idiot. And I discovered everybody else also is worried that they don't know anything. And so there's this, always this assumption that everybody knows something, and maybe we don't know what the heck we're talking about sometimes. So I believe perhaps there's an assumption when we use terminology at church, those of us who are pastors or grew up in church, and we say, oh, this is the prosperity gospel, and this is why we're not a prosperity gospel church. There's probably a group of people sitting there like, I don't really know what the heck you're talking about. So that's what I'm going to talk to you guys today. What, what does the gospel present when it's talking about prosperity and your life here on earth. Um, to follow up on Matt's most, not most recent, but something he brought up a few months ago. Do you guys remember learning about exegesis and eisegesis and that being like, what the heck is he talking about? So the, the study of the context of the Bible, when you read the Bible and you're saying, well, what does this mean, is a term called hermeneutics. And you can break hermeneutics down two ways. There's hermeneutics, there's, I'm just studying and trying to interpret what the Bible says. There's a lot of passages that are uh, somewhat abstract and require a lot of context. And then there's some passages, like when we went through the Ruth Bible study, that's very direct and requires very little context. But when you're looking to see what does this mean, what is the context, that terminology is called hermeneutics. If you're doing it properly, you're critically examining what the Bible says and what it means. That's called exegesis. Um, if you ever hear a pastor saying we're going to do an exegetical, that's like a Bible study studying proper context of a certain passage. If you're like many people in the church today and probably all throughout the history of, of the church, and you're saying here's what I believe, here's what I think is true, and I'm going to search the Bible to 
to find that confirmation of what I believe, regardless of what the actual, actual exegetical context of it is, there's a term for that, that's called eisegesis. Uh, so that's a little bit of theology class for you today, and we're gonna look at something that I think a lot of people use as eisegesis, a couple of passages that I think famously are taken out of context, and then we're gonna look at what the Bible has to say kind of in the proper context of exegesis. Uh, so you can probably almost guess what the two are. They're on uh, t-shirts, coffee mugs, bookstores everywhere. Uh, that's Jeremiah 29.11 and Romans 8.28. I, I promise you in churches all throughout America, there's probably this Bible verse on somebody's t-shirt or coffee mug when you walk in. Jeremiah 29.11 is, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. And then Romans 8, 28, as we know all things work for those who love God. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It would be very easy to read these passages and think, oh, the plans that God have for me here on earth are going to work to my earthly benefit. It says here, it's a, it's a good plan, it's a future. All things work together for good. You know, there, there are people out there that say, oh, if you are following God uh, and you read these verses, that job that you want, you're going to get, that, that promotion you need, you're going to get. If, if you're tithing and you're giving to the Lord, uh, that money's going to come back to you and you're going to live a good life. You're going to be able to buy that car. You can name it and claim it. I want this God in your name and then claim it as yours. And the, the rest of the Bible doesn't support that. So we're going to look at these two verses, and then we're going to look at stories in the Bible of people who had plans from God, people who are loving God, doing things according to his purpose, and we'll just see how things turn out for them. I think that would be a proper exegesis of the scripture. Uh, so one famous story, my absolute favorite story of the Bible is the story of Joseph, and I'm not talking about Jesus' stepdad, but the Joseph in the book of Genesis. Um, you guys know um, Isaac, the promised son of Abraham and Sarah. He has two children, Jacob and Esau. Uh, Jacob meets God, has his name changed to Israel, and through that, the kind of the entire nation of Israel is created. So Israel, Jacob, and his 12 sons, the second youngest, but the first child of Rachel, the wife that he loved the most, is a man named Joseph. Uh, Joseph is what we call a, a Christ type, not that he is Jesus Christ himself, but he exhibits the characteristics that point people towards Jesus. He's one of the few characters of the Bible where it doesn't in detail discuss his sin. Like we, we did a big one on David recently, and we see this is a man after God's own heart, and you read it, and you're like, well, there's there's a whole lot of sin. Um, I thought about bringing up Lot because Lot was another good example of what I want to talk about, but there were some passages I just wasn't going to co cover with Lot. But Joseph is a character who points people towards Jesus in the sense that he is obedient through many different circumstances. So we're going to start early on in the story of Joseph, and that's Genesis 37. Uh, we're going to read some of it, and then I'm going to 
expand on some of it without reading because it's like 13 chapters of the book of Genesis. And even though I, I preach short, I'm not trying to fill that with 13 chapters worth of the Bible, so I'll kind of recap some of it. Uh, so starting with verse 5 of Genesis 37, it says, Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the fields, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So that they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Then he dreamed another dream, and it told, to, and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So Joseph is a man with a gift from God. Uh, that gift, that purpose that Joseph has given by God is he has an ability to interpret dreams and prophesy on what is right, what is wrong, what does the future hold for me and for other people. So if we're, if we're looking at the worldly definition of Romans 8.28 and in Jeremiah 29.11, he's, he's a servant of God. He's doing what God wants him to do. He's interpreting dreams. He's walking with the Lord. So naturally good things should happen to him, right? This is a gospel of prosperity. Uh, that is not the case at all. So his brothers, 11 of them, one being younger, 10 being older, they hate his guts because he just interpreted a dream of, hey, one day I'm going to rule over you guys. And as a result, they come up with this plan. They, they're going to kill him uh, until they're kind of talked out of that situation. So we're going to kind of move on to verses 23 through 28 of Genesis 37. It says, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, and, let's not, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. The Midianites' traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. So you see here his, his prosperity of what he gets to endure is he gets thrown into a pit by his 11 brothers who plan to kill him. I'd imagine Joseph is probably assuming his death is imminent in this pit. And instead, not because really that they love his brother, but they're thinking, why, if we kill him, it's free. If we give him away, there's money. They choose to, to sell him into slavery for 20 pieces of silver, which, you know, it's... That's, it's a low bargain, I guess, for a, a person who can interpret dreams. Uh, moving on, though, so the, the Midianites, they take him to Egypt, and they sell him to a man whose name is Potiphar. Potiphar is one of the rulers of Egypt. He's not Pharaoh, but he has a high-ranking position. And naturally, Joseph, 
is going to continue to honor God, continue to walk according to his purpose, and we'll see how that turns out for him. So 39, 1 through 6 of Genesis, it says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and all over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and the field, so that he had left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. I always find it funny that he wasn't willing to give up the choice that he had on food. I'd be the same way. Um, But you see Joseph here. He's sold into slavery. He's working for Potiphar. But now he's finally getting that prosperity that he wants. He was faithful. He made it through his hard time. He's in the clear now, working for Potiphar, second in command of the whole house, even though he's a slave, doing everything. And the Lord is blessing both Potiphar and Joseph in that situation. Uh, But there's a problem here. In the very next verse, you find out that uh, Joseph is strong and Joseph is handsome. Uh, And those two qualities you would think would work in his favor, but in this situation, they don't. So Potiphar's wife... Uh, finds Joseph very attractive, and Potiphar is not always around, and so his wife tries to seduce Joseph over and over again. But Joseph, being a man of God, uh, decides he's not going to do that. And at one point, he literally runs away from her, and she grabs part of his garment, and it's left behind. And she uses that opportunity of, oh, you've not let me manipulate you and use you for my own gain, I'm going to take advantage of my position as the wife of Potiphar to ruin your life. And so that's what she does. Um, She tells Potiphar what happened, uh, and you can see that in Genesis 39, 16 through 20. It said, she laid up her garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the story saying, the Hebrew servant who you brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard his words that his wife spoke to him, the way, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Potiphar's wife makes up a story about him that's untrue. And you would think, you know, God has a plan for you that's good. Certainly this won't happen to him, but it does. He goes to prison and spends a long time in prison. While he's in prison, he meets a couple of people that work for Pharaoh. Um, They both have dreams, and he possesses the ability to interpret them. He gives one of them good news. Hey, in three days, your relationship as a cupbearer is going to be restored. Um, Pharaoh is going to invite you back home into his home. The other guy was like, oh, these dreams are good things. I'll interpret my dream, you know. You, he's got good news. Certainly I do too. And he's like, no, you're actually going to die in three days. And not a great dream to have. Uh, but that comes true. The, the cupbearer's relationship is restored to Pharaoh. And Joseph's one request as he's leaving is, hey, man, 
I just interpreted this dream for you. When it proves to be true, remember me. Remember my faithfulness in this prison um, that I've done everything the guards have asked. I've been good to you. Remember that. And if you can, help me get out of here. So naturally, as we know, we believe in a, if we believe in a eisegesis form of prosperity gospel, that's going to happen, you know. Pharaoh's going to meet this cupbearer again. He's going to be like, yeah, you'll never believe this guy in prison. He could totally help you out. He interprets dreams. Uh, but that doesn't happen. So Genesis 40, verses 20 through 23, it says, On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He, re- he restored the chief cupbearer of his position and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted them, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So I feel like I would remember the guy that kind of told me my life was going to be saved, uh, but that's not the case for him. And moving on to 41 at the beginning, it says, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed him in the reed grass, and behold, Seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent for all the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men. Pharaoh told him his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And, he, and as he interpreted it to us, so it came about, I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Uh, you see here, how long of a period of time does it have, the passes between the cupbearer being restored and he actually telling Pharaoh about it? Two years. That's two years of Joseph doing nothing wrong, sitting in prison, waiting to see if he's ever going to be restored or not. And in that time, we, we never see an example of Joseph being unfaithful to the Lord, but he managed to sit in prison uh, for two whole years. In that moment, he finally gets restored when the chief cupbearer tells him about um, his ability to interpret dreams. Uh, Pharaoh calls Joseph before him. He explains to him that this is a, an interpretation that there's going to be seven really good years of plenty and then there's going to be seven years of incredible drought where there's going to be nothing at all. We need to save up excess for our seven years of plenty uh, for the imminent fact that there's going to be seven years of really hard time and no food and no excess. And because of that, uh, 
I mean, everyone in Egypt is prepared better than anyone for a global pandemic of bad times to come, which made them the powerhouse of a nation that they became. Everybody, one of the first history lessons you learn in school is about the dynasty of Egypt and how it came to power. It really came to power through Joseph's ability to interpret dreams. And he gives Pharaoh clear instruction. And finally, after years of being a slave in Potiphar's house, um, after being in a ditch, hung out to die by his brothers, by sitting in prison and being forgotten, finally, after all of this, he has restoration in his relationship. And he actually comes to, to save his brothers who are, are part of the, the drought. Um, what's even crazy is after this, we're not going to read it, but in Exodus, we see that a pharaoh forgets all about Joseph once again in that worldly translation of him being faithful to God and everybody being restored as a result of it. They end up getting driven into slavery for, for 400 years. So even after this restoration of Joseph, this idea of worldly goodness that people are going to receive by being faithful to God, even then it's kind of thrown in the trash with 400 years of slavery. Another uh, famous passage of scripture that kind of goes over this is the book of Job. I don't know if you know this, but even though this is like 20 books later in the Bible, this book was written before this, this book. So chronologically, this story that I'm about to read happened before even Joseph. Um, so there's a man named Job. Job is a, a rich man, uh, has, a, has a family, has children, is blessed, and follows God and honors God in every situation. Similar to Joseph, you never see Job in a large way commit a sin, is faithful to God throughout the entirety. Obviously, he is a man, he is a sinner, but the Bible doesn't discuss what his sins are due to his faithfulness. It says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Um, so you see, this is someone who's faithful, and God, to this point, has blessed him. Unrelated to the sermon, but every time I read like his possessions, did any of you follow the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial? But there's a part of it that they're like, what would it take for you to go back to Pirates of the Caribbean, and he's like, I wouldn't do it for a million alpacas. And then he, <laughs> this guy's got 7,000 sheep and 3,300 camels. I always just think like, oh, a million alpacas too. Like I should have added that at the end. Uh, but he, he's blessed by God, you know? He's someone who's faithful. Does that work out for him in worldly blessings to come, even though he has remained faithful? It does not. Let's look at six through 12. It said, there was, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and from the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and that all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, 
Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So Satan himself and God are talking, and they're having a, a prosperity gospel conversation here. Hey, the only reason Job loves you is because you're helping him out. You're giving him all these uh, oxen and sheep, and you're blessing his family, and everything you do works out for him. And what is God's response to that with Satan? All right, fine, do, do what you want. I, I believe in Job. I believe that he's faithful. And Satan says, no, he'll, he'll curse you immediately if you take that blessing away from him. And God gives him one instruction. My only command is that you not actually kill him. And that's what Satan does. He goes through and, and ruins everything. Uh, let's look at Job 1, 13 through 22. So now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys were feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them up and struck them down, the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. This is like the worst day a human being could probably have. I had a, I had a bad day this week, found out like, Two of my cars are dying, and I only have two cars, so that, that kind of sucks. Uh, literally took one of my cars to a dealership, and they said, we'll give you $500 for it. And I said, it's yours, and bought a new car. Um, still working on the other one. But I remember just sitting at home, like, this is the worst day I've had in such a long time. Uh, but Joe definitely tops that by a mile. All of his oxen, all of his camels, everything is killed. His children die. Um, he's basically now uh, gone from one of the richest people on earth to now all he has is his wife. Uh, and you think that relationship would be solid, but she's not exactly too happy about the situation. Uh, it says if you read 20 through 22, it says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I have come from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave me, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with any wrong. So you see his response, having the worst day of his life, he continues to honor God, even though there is no blessing, there is no prosperity, it has all been taken away from him. And you would think in that moment, Satan would be like, Ah, I didn't get him. You know, here, I give up. That, it gets worse, sadly. Uh, moving on uh, to Job 2, it says, So Satan once again went out from the presence of the Lord and choked, uh, struck Job with loathsome sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself, and he sat in the ashes. And then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. 
Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So all, I got, all he has now is his wife. Now he's covered from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head with loathsome sores. I don't necessarily know the details, but I imagine that's a pretty bad situation. To the point where his wife has said, you should just die, man. Like, imagine your spouse telling you that. I always say, I never want to have too big of a life insurance policy where I'm worth more to my wife dead than alive. But in this situation, it would appear to Job's wife, she would, he would be worth more to him dead than alive. Just, just die. Your life is miserable. And what is his response, even though everything's taken away from him? That he said to her, you're being pretty foolish right now. You know, God is going to give us good times. Is it not fair to understand that evil will come out of those times as well? And he continues to not sin. As a result of that, eventually his worldly possessions are restored. Three of his friends come and, you know, give him bad advice, and he continues to remain faithful. Other people come and give him okay advice that's not good or bad. Uh, But eventually Satan understands that it's not the prosperity, it's not the good times in Job that makes him faithful. It's just his dedication to the Lord that makes him faithful. And eventually he does on earth have his relationship restored. So I did mention two stories of people who on earth had their relationship restored. But I think the ultimate story is someone who did not have that happen, and that's with Jesus Christ himself. Um, I would hope you all know the story of Jesus pretty well. He was born of Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem, lived a perfect life. Uh, At the age of 30, begins his ministry on earth, um, travels from town to town, lives a, a relatively modest life, and is hated by all the religious leaders on on earth, and they come up with a way to, to kill him, basically, that he's blasphemed by saying that he's the son of God, and we can read that story in John 9, and we're just going to, uh, John 19, not John 9. We're going to read 1 through 16 together. It says, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing out to you so that you may find, uh, so you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone of Pavement, 
pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king, the chief priests? We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So, book of John, we have the character Jesus, and he's not like Joseph and Job. It's not that the Bible doesn't list his sins. It's that he has none. He is the son of God who lived a perfect life and did nothing wrong. And you would think in that moment, and the same way that the Jews at the time, certainly if the Son of God came to man, there'd be great prosperity, there'd be great wealth, he would overthrow the government, we would live in a a utopian world where Jesus, the Son of God, reigns supreme, and that wasn't the case. He didn't come and he didn't have prosperity, instead he, he reprimanded them on all that they were doing, and as a result they crucified him. It's the ultimate example of you can live a perfect life and things are not going to go the way that you think they are at times. He gets killed. He's hung between two thieves. Uh, He dies on a cross. And as a result, we have an opportunity of eternity because of that. Um, So what does Jeremiah 29.11 and Romans 8.28 mean if they're talking about good things that will come and things working together for good, because we see all of these ultimate examples when we study the context of the Bible that would lead you to think that the Bible doesn't mean worldly possessions and worldly good. Um, And we're gonna look at the book of Revelations next. Um, We are gonna study this in the fall. I know a lot of people in my time as a youth leader, every youth student that ever comes up to me and they suggest a book for us to study, it's always Revelation. Uh, So you guys are gonna get your wish It's coming up. Matt's going to do it this fall. Uh, But let's take a look at it. It says, Revelations 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So the gospel is a book of prosperity. At the end of your story, if you have been faithful and accepted Christ as your savior, you will get the prosperity that you seek. There will be a world that has no more mourning, that has no more crying, that has no more pain, but you need to understand that might not happen until you enter heaven and the new Jerusalem. That would be the proper understanding of what Jeremiah 29:11 and Romans 8:28 looks like you might be faithful to God and you might lose your job. You might be faithful to God and uh, the people you love will betray and leave you. You might be faithful to God and tithe and you not see worldly fruit as a result of it. But if you are faithful to God at the end of the story, you will live in a place with no more death, no more crying, no more pain, no more mourning. And that is what a proper prosperity gospel looks like. Um, Just hope if you're getting that type of advice um, or any type of advice that you feel like is 
possibly not backed up by scripture. You would question it. You would do proper hermeneutics of the Bible, study the context, think about what it says. I just hope that you would be faithful in that moment. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you. Uh, Thank you that we do have an opportunity of of having uh, prosperity with you, God. And I know it may not be the definition that we think it is. We might not be able to live our our best life now. That that best life might come in eternity, or it will come in eternity, Lord. Just pray that we would be like Joseph. We would be like Job. Um, We would strive to be like you, Lord. And even though we face adversity, that we wouldn't sin. We wouldn't betray you. We wouldn't say... I thought good things would happen to me as a result of you on earth, and it doesn't seem to be that way. And curse you, Lord. Just pray that all of us would remain faithful. Uh, Just pray for the many people on earth who think this, this gospel of worldly prosperity is what the Bible says, and when they see it not happening on earth, they, they question you and they judge you, Lord. Just pray that we would be able to, to be a light as believers of what that actually looks like and what prosperity is being discussed, that there's a eternity that you're going to spend, and if, if you believe in God's Son and accept Him as your Savior, that you'll get to experience that level of prosperity. Uh, just pray for, for this week, a, a lot going on on earth, a lot of hard trying times with people arguing. Just pray that in that situation we would we'd be a light and we would act in a way that you would want us to act through the, the many adversities going on. Uh, just pray for the, the Johnson family as they're leaving us. Pray that you would use them and their, their new home. Just pray for those of us who are associated with youth going to camp this week that we would be able to share the gospel with people who maybe have never heard it. Uh, in your name, amen.